We now come to the reading of God's Word. Our passage today is going to be from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So if you would like to turn there again, Romans 8, 1 through 17. Please listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would condescend to us by your spirit, that you would take your word and that you would write it upon our hearts, that we would be reminded that this very morning we have the hope of a risen Savior, and that risen Savior spoke and by the power of his voice called the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and he spoke into the tombs themselves and raised the dead. Father, we pray that we would hear his voice, the voice of our living Christ in that same power this morning. Would you heal us and wake us from the dead? And from our slumber with your word, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated. Um, I just noticed that there's a pretty big typo in the bulletin, and that is that it says that we are having children's church this morning, which we are not. Um, And so I want to go ahead and get that out there and over with. Um, 
ask for your forgiveness. Um, we'll be back on schedule for next week, but we did want to give our workers in the Children's Church an opportunity to be with us this morning during our Easter service. Um, you know, I think Easter um, gets kind of a, a bum deal um, by being uh, the last in a string of holidays, right? Um, Thanksgiving kind of kicks it off for us. A lot of food, a lot of football. Um, but that, that's just like the starter's pistol heading into Christmas, right? The big deal of Christmas. And then you got New Year's. And then you got the, <clears throat> the pressure cooker of uh, Valentine's Day. Um, and, then, uh, and then Easter comes last. And it's, it, it's a shame. It kind of stinks because Easter, I think it could be argued very easily, is more important than them all. Um, the Apostle Paul would make that argument himself um, in his letter to the church at Corinth when he wrote, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. See, our hope, our faith, everything that we're doing this morning, it is all a royal waste of time if Christ has not risen from the dead and did not rise from the dead on that first Easter morning. It's fascinating to me the way that Paul made that argument um, because he teases our imaginations with that very little word, just two letters, if. Right? What if, he's asking, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Imagine the impact. And it got me thinking about um, an interesting discipline of historiography um, that's called counterfactual history, uh, if you've heard of it. Maybe some of you have. It's a discipline of history that really sets itself to studying the what-if questions of history, right? What if this or that had happened um, or didn't happen, right? What would its impact be? Uh, how would life be different today if that happened or didn't happen? Um, and maybe it sounds weird to you to talk about counterfactual history, but you've all been entertained by it, um, at least in, in some form in popular culture, um, especially if you're my age, because you remember with great fondness the movie Back to the Future. Um, and Doc was constantly warning Marty you know, don't intervene with history. If you do, you'll, there'll be this rippling effect and impact to the space-time continuum. You remember the, the story, right? Hopefully some of you do. Um, but um, it, or, you know, there's, a more, uh, there's a relatively more new show. I, I haven't seen it, uh, but I think some of you have probably seen it on Amazon called The Man in the High Castle, um, right? That, the whole plot is built off of counterfactual history. What if the Nazis had won World War Two, what would the impact be? And I understand that it's a bit speculative, of course, but the true value of counterfactual history is that it highlights the importance and the impact of certain specific historical events, right? And Paul understood Christianity is unique among all other religions, among all other philosophies of life, because Christianity is utterly dependent upon historical events, right? Everything hinges on a real person 
named Jesus, who claimed to be fully God and fully man. Everything hinges on this real person who lived at a specific time in a specific place who was really crucified and really rose from the dead. If that didn't happen, our faith and our preaching and everything we're doing this morning is useless. The what-if questions highlights the importance of Easter and its impact. And so what I want to do with this passage from Romans chapter 8 is briefly think with you this morning about three ways Jesus' resurrection, if you believe it, will impact and transform your life. So here are those three ways. Easter will transform you by setting you free, by giving you a new power for living, and by giving you a new motive that will bring about deep transformation in your life. Okay, so first, freedom. Jesus' death and resurrection sets us free. Famous sociologist, American sociologist named Robert Bella, uh, he wrote that freedom is perhaps the most resonant and deeply held American value. And I agree with him completely. I think many of you probably agree with him completely. Freedom resonates deeply with us, right? We hunger and we ache for freedom. We want to experience freedom. We want to live in freedom. We want to live out of freedom in our lives. But why are we hungering and aching for it? It's a deeply held value. It's an ideal that we have. But at the very same time, it is missing from our very real life experience. We feel it. We are enslaved. We're enslaved to the anxieties that we have about an uncertain and unpredictable future. We are enslaved to anxieties about fear of loss. We're enslaved to proving our value, right, through performance or achievement or accomplishment or prosperity or popularity. We're enslaved to the opinions of others. We're enslaved to to the opinions we have of ourselves, right? We ache for freedom, but we're enslaved, trying to prove that we're enough, that we're okay, that we're lovable, that we measure up. So as much as we ache for freedom, it feels desperately elusive to us in life. I saw an episode of the TV show Gotham. Uh, I don't know if there's any fans of that show. I haven't watched it entirely, but um, I saw this one particular episode that really stuck with me. Uh, Gotham is another one of those superhero origins type TV shows that are really popular right now. And in this one particular scene, the character Penguin, you remember Penguin from Batman, right? Um, But he's in his younger years, and he was reunited with his father. And he's sitting there talking with his father, and he broke down in front of his father, and, and this is what he said. He said to his father, Believe me, I've done bad things. There is so much I haven't told you. There is so much I'm ashamed of. I'm a criminal. I've done horrible things. I've hurt people, manipulated, lied to get power, to get revenge. And in this scene, which is kind of a moving scene... His father looks at him and he said this, I forgive you. Be free of your transgressions. 
and live here in peace. And then he said, you are loved and you are not alone. Network TV, right? Um, Fascinating words and concepts for network TV. Transgressions, freedom, forgiveness. You are loved and not alone. And it's in this incredibly powerful scene that when you're watching it, and when you're hearing those words, you start to realize, if I could believe that, I would be free. I mean, can you imagine that? What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you no longer had to prove to yourself or to others or to God that you mattered and were enough? That you were valuable, that you were desirable, that you were lovable, and that you measured up? What if you didn't have to prove that anymore? What if those words were spoken to you and you knew that there was nothing you could ever do to make the only one who matters in the universe, God himself, there was nothing you could ever do to make him love you less? What if you knew that you could never do anything to make him love you any more than he already does right now? If you had that, you would be free completely forgiven, entirely loved, and not alone. Paul wrote in verses 1 through 2 of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now listen, that, that is way more than saying you aren't condemned. He is saying, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, he's saying, condemnation doesn't even exist for you as a possibility anymore. It is gone. The spirit of life, the spirit of the resurrection, has set you completely and entirely free. The Apostle John wrote something fascinating in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He wrote this. If we confess our sins, some of you will remember this verse, pretty popular one. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. See, He doesn't make His case by saying, by appealing to God's faithfulness and His grace, or His faithfulness and His mercy. But He makes His case by appealing to God's faithfulness and God's justice. Now, why is that? It's because it would be unjust of God if He were ever to demand more than one payment for your sins. Because Jesus was condemned in your place, your appeal, and my appeal is to God's justice. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, and you are free. He paid it all. Now, what does this have to do with the historical resurrection? This is what one author wrote. By dying and rising for us, Jesus has closed the deal. God has signed for it, and his signature is the resurrection. You know know what a receipt is, right? 
It is proof of payment. So you can walk past that lady at Walmart with confidence. You know, you have the receipt in your bag. Um, Right? Jesus' death and resurrection has set you free. There cannot be two payments for your sin. And if you believe that, it will begin to break the chains of your slavery, trying to prove that you're enough, that you're worthy, that you're valuable, that you're lovable. The resurrection is God's receipt. You are forgiven. You are free. You are loved. And you are not alone. Okay, second, Jesus' death and resurrection gives you a new power for living and for life. See, the reason I put the quote that I put on the front of your bulletin by uh, that guy, Sam Alberry, is is I think he's right, right? In our most sober moments of reflection, all of us in this room, we want to change. We want to know we can become something different, that we can grow up, that we can be transformed, right? Uh, We know that when we're being honest with ourselves, we're really just shadows of what we were meant to be, right? But the power to change, to have the power to change, and I'm not, not just change our behavior, but to deeply change who we are, it seems to constantly elude us in life. And it's, it's because of this. It's because no amount of psychological or emotional or volitional power that we can muster in our own strength will ever be enough to change us. So here's what Paul tells us, verse 11. God sent the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead to dwell in you and give you life. Here's what he's saying, to change. To really change We need a new nature. We need within us the same power operating in our lives that raised Jesus from the dead if we're ever going to change. And when you become a Christian, that's exactly what you get. Verse 9, the spirit of the living Christ dwelling in you. Sometimes we feel it in life more intensely than others, but we all have this sense that I talked about a moment ago that we are just shadows of who and what we were meant to be. Um, to be what we were made to be, to do what we were made to do, to live the lives we were made to live, right? What if we had a new power and a new nature to live that out? I mean, that would be freedom to be who you were meant to be. What if we could discover? a power, right, to be what we were meant to be. If, um, if you want to pray for me and my family, this would be a good week because um, we, are, we are getting a new puppy this week, um, a seven-week-old little fluffy Labrador retriever. Um, and I have a lot of fear and anxiety about this. Um, for 13 years, I had a chocolate lab, and, uh, and she was amazing. But lab puppies don't start out amazing. Um, <laughs> they're a lot of work. And my, my favorite story to tell about that, that dog that I had, that chocolate lab, was when I first took her to swim. And she was just about, she was just a couple of months old. And uh, I took her to this pond, and I tried everything I could to get her into the water, 
right? But she wasn't having it. I mean, she wouldn't get close to it. Um, and so eventually I gave up and I said, well, we'll try again next week. And so I went back a week later and this time she got right up to the edge and got her little paws wet and I, I started to get exciting. Maybe she's going to go in, but that's as far as she would go. So I went home frustrated again. I gave up. And I came back a week later and this time she got her legs wet. Um, and, um, and this time I was like, she's getting in the water. So I got in the water. I waded in was calling her to myself, trying to trick her to come to me and all that kind of stuff. Well, she never went in, so we went home, and I went home wet, right? And, uh, and I was, at this point, I was getting actually a little frustrated because I thought I had been sold a broken, defective Labrador Retriever. You know, she doesn't want to get in the water. And these dogs are bred for the water, right? God gave them webbed feet, for crying out loud. Right? They're made for the water. But I took her one more time. And this time, she got all the way in. And she swam. And I think it sticks out in my mind because it was just so amazing to see it click for her. To see the light bulb go off. And for her to realize and experience what she was made to be and do. I mean, the hardest part of that day was getting her out of the water. Right? And every time she was in my car and we drove past that pond, she would cry and whine in the back of the car because she so desperately wanted to be in the water. She knew what she was made to do and be. She had discovered her nature, right? Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away, right? Unless I go away, he said, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you can imagine the disciples hearing that and thinking, in what world could it possibly be good for us to have Jesus leave us? But Jesus was promising to send the spirit of power who would raise him from the dead. Right? To come and live and dwell in each of his followers. To what extent... Would it change your life to have someone live with you, to move into your house and not just visit on the weekend? Right, 13 years ago, Jennifer and I were getting ready to welcome into the world our firstborn, my daughter Kennedy. And all of our friends who had already had kids up to that point would say to us, oh, just wait, everything's going to change. And truthfully, it felt a little condescending. Um, I mean... We knew that. We knew things were going to change. We had been painting a baby room, putting together a crib, and all that kind of stuff. You know, we were ready. But to intellectually process that and know that and to actually experience that is radically different. I can remember when we drove up that driveway to our house for the first time with Kennedy, and we got her out of her car seat, and we walked her inside. And I mean, I crossed the threshold, and... I felt this tightness in my chest, <laughs> like maybe I'm having a heart attack, I'm not really sure, um, because all of a sudden, it dawned on me, this little girl was now going to live with us, <laughs> right? I mean, and we have to take care of her, and we can't buzz the nurse to come get her when we want to get some sleep, right? Paul says... 
You know, now what we tell expecting parents is, just wait, everything's going to change. Um, <laughs> because it does, right? Paul says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And just like our little kids, everything has to change in light of that. I mean, Jennifer, we haven't been alone for 13 years now, right? (laughs) All privacy is gone. Um, To have someone live with you changes everything, right? The way you do life changes. The way you do meals and bedtimes and how you spend your money, everything changes. Changes the entire course of your life. Now, I've got to move on to the last point, but before we do, I want to encourage you to think out the the implications in two directions, okay? First... If for me to change and be transformed, if what I really need is the power of the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, then that must mean that my sin is much bigger, much more deeply ingrained, much, more, much deeper in my heart than I ever give it, give it credit for. But second, for Jesus to take up residence in us by his Spirit and dwell in me, that must mean that he intends to change everything about my life. Right? This means he cares more about every detail of my life than I almost ever give him credit for. Everything I do Everything I say, everything I think, everything I watch, every relationship I have, every attitude I have, every, every time I respond to anything, it matters to Him because He has come to live inside of us. He intends for us to discover the freedom of being and doing what He made us to be and do in every aspect of life. Okay, finally... Jesus' death and resurrection gives you a new motive for change in your life. I'm just going to scratch the surface barely here. But if you notice in verse 13 that Paul, he gives us something to do. He says, by the Spirit, you are to put to death the deeds or the misdeeds of the body. That is, he's saying, you are to kill the sin that still remains in your life. Now, here's how we naturally deal with sin in our lives when we become aware of it. Um, Maybe it's our greed or our lust or our selfishness or envy or anger that we become aware of. And instead of believing, verse 1, that Jesus' resurrection is God's signature, right, that there is now no condemnation for us, instead of doing that, what we naturally do is we fall into a cycle of condemnation in our lives. And we use fear and guilt and shame to motivate ourselves. We say think we don't, maybe we, maybe we say it out loud, but a lot of times it's just internal. And we say to ourselves, how could you do that again? What's wrong with you? You should be ashamed of yourself. You are such a failure. You are such a disappointment. And it feels very powerful to us, and it is. It is powerful, right? And we start to think, if I can just feel bad enough this time, if I can just feel guilty enough and ashamed enough this time, then I'll never want to do that again, and I'll change. And initially, it does feel very powerful. 
but give it a few days. Right? And eventually the shame and the guilt they kind of wear off and fade into the distance. And what you realize is that all the changes you've made are just at the surface. They're behavioral at best, right? And you aren't really that different. You haven't really changed. The root of that sin is dug deep in your heart. But I want you to notice something here in this passage. As soon as Paul tells us to put sin to death, he doesn't start talking about condemnation, but about something else. He starts talking immediately about how we are sons and daughters of God. He starts talking immediately about how we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Right? This is all in verses 14 through 17. That we received instead a spirit of adoption as sons. And we are to cry by that spirit, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are his children. That we are heirs. That we are co-heirs. Knowing that you are forgiven. That the resurrection is God's signature to you. Proof of payment, everything done, knowing you are free, knowing that you are loved and you are not alone because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the antidote to the poison of sin in your heart and coursing through your veins. That is the beauty. That is the beauty that has to be taken down into the deep roots of our sin in order to expel it. See, Paul knows that every time we crave, we cave to our sins of greed or lust or anger or envy or selfishness or whatever, he knows it's because we're chasing something, right? We're trying to prove that we're enough, that we're lovable, that we're desirable, that we're significant, that we're secure. We fall into sin every time we think Jesus' death and resurrection isn't enough for me. I need this. I need that. Sin is put to death in your life only when you are captivated by something of greater beauty in your life. A Savior who died and rose from the dead to set you free. And when the beams of His grace rise upon your heart, it will begin to thaw and crack the iciness of your heart. About 15 years ago, I went to Liberty Land. It's gone now, so if you're new to Memphis, you missed that wonderful um, piece of our history. Um, it was a sad little amusement park, and, um, you know, it, it, there were like three rides and then a bunch of carnival games and some pretty shady characters uh, that worked those carnival games. And I went, um, I hope nobody was working there or whatever, um, but... Uh, sure you weren't in that group, but um, I went in the middle of the summer one summer. Um, It was terribly hot, Memphis summer, and within 30 minutes, I rode all the rides multiple times and was bored, Um, because there aren't any lines at at Liberty Land. That was one great thing. Um, So I got a corn dog, Pronto Pup, and and a Coke, and I sat down on this bench, and while I was sitting there, I noticed... I began to notice the people around me. 
Um, some of them were staring and some of them were whispering to each other and some of them were giggling and some were even pointing. And so I followed their gazes and their pointing to see what they were looking at. And uh, throughout the park in Liberty Land, there are you know, these sidewalks connecting everything and they had these mist machines set up so that during the hot summer you could go walk underneath these mist machines that were spraying out the water and you could get cooled off a little bit and um, there was a father and I'm guessing his daughter was eight or nine years old and they were playing underneath this mist machine and they were playing in the water and puddles had formed under this mist machine and they were splashing in it and they were dancing and they were laughing and at one point he lifted her up and he put her on his shoulders and they were just spinning around in the mist machine having a blast right and Everyone was staring um, because and some of them were laughing and some of them were pointing because this little girl, she was horribly physically handicapped. Um, and I can't quite do it justice to paint you a picture, but the arm and leg on one side of her body were at least twice as large and long as the arm and leg on her other, the other side of her body. And it was just that asymmetry that looked very, very awkward. And I was sitting there, and I was just getting so angry. Like, how dare they laugh at this little girl and point at this little girl and whisper about this little girl? And then I realized something. That little girl, she was completely oblivious to it all. I mean, she didn't care at all. Their opinions didn't matter one bit. Her own opinion of herself, whatever that was, it did not matter in that moment. And you know why? It's because her eyes were locked with her father's eyes. And she had his smile and his love and his delight, and nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered. She was free. Right? She saw herself through his eyes. She was there in that moment, pleasing her father just by being with her father. Right? She only cared about pleasing him. Now listen. What if, what if you knew that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you had the smile of God and would have it forever. What if, right, what if love and acceptance and grace were your motivation in life instead of fear and shame? What if you knew He didn't die and rise from the dead so that you would ever fall back again into a spirit of slavery and fear? What if you knew that his death and resurrection brought you all the way into his arms so that you could call him Abba, Father? If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. And so is everything that we're doing this morning. But he has. He's not in the tomb. He is living today and alive. And you have been set free. 
and you have been given a new power of living in Him. You've been given a new motivation to change deeply and to be transformed by His grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we hear these words, and if I'm honest with myself, there are many times that I hear these words and I think they're too good to be true. Would you reveal to us this morning, by the power of your Spirit, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that these words are not too good to be true. They are good and they are true. Our Savior is alive and in Him we have a new power for living. In Him we have been set free. In Him we have a new motivation to change. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.